0: Hello and welcome to this, the third of the UCL European Institute series of podcasts. Um, my name is Tim Beasley-Murray and I'm a lecturer in European thought and culture at UCL. And it's a huge privilege to welcome uh, my colleague, my colleague from UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies uh, to this podcast, Rachel Morley. Um, Rachel is lecturer in Russian cinema and culture. And we're here to discuss her book, uh, Performing Femininity, Woman as performer in early Russian cinema and this is a book that's come out in the Kino series uh, with IB Taurus. So Rachel um, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Tim. And we're going back in time and we're going to to a subject that to some might seem a little bit obscure namely to pre-Russian revolutionary cinema. These are films that were locked up as far as I understand from 1918 Mm -hmm. to the end of the 80s and and you're looking at these. Could you set the scene for us and maybe tell us a little bit about pre-Russian revolution, pre-revolutionary Russian cinema and why the figure of the performing woman is so important in them?
1: Well, perhaps the first point to make is that actually to call this pre-revolutionary Russian cinema is a little bit of a misnomer. And the term early cinema, which is in the title of the book, is perhaps the, the more apt term. Partly because the film industry that sprang up before the revolution actually continued through it and beyond it. And it wasn't until sort of the end of 1918, the start of 1919, that the Soviets actually got round to dismantling the private industry that had um, flourished before the revolution. So these films, which we now often think of as representing the pre-revolutionary world, and which do to a large extent in terms of worldview and so on, were being made at the same time as the revolutionary events of 1917 and beyond. So the cinema industry in Russia started later than in other European countries. Um, The first Russian-made feature film was only released in 1908 and that was a film called Stenka Razin by, um, produced by a filmmaker called Alexander Drankov who had started work as a cinema still photographer and also as a photographer for newspapers. And he was also a consummate salesman. He knew the value of cinema as as a commercial art form and he was determined to sort of make money by making films like this. So his first film focused on a historical legend, the legend of a 17th century Don Cossack, Razin, very, very famous in Russian, the Russian context. But what's interesting about his use of that character is that he immediately is introducing one of the mo- main concerns or one of the concerns that would go on to become dominant in this period, that of gender and gender relations in the contemporary world. So, Although it focuses on on Razin, for example, it doesn't tell us a story about his status as a hero and as a rebel. It focuses instead on his obsession with a woman, an Oriental Persian princess who he's captured during skirmishes with the Persians and with whom he's infatuated and in love. And she is the first performer of Russian film and it's through spelling out their relationship that many of the concerns that would go on to be redefined, refined rather, in the period are introduced to us.
0: So I mean you say actually when you're in, in your discussion of this, the first Russian feature film, mm-hmm. more or less the first Russian feature film that it has this dancing oriental princess at its heart and in many ways it's not about Stinka Razin mm-hmm. um, the, the, the Cossack rebel but it's about his passion for her. It's about the view of the women straight off. Um, and, and you say throughout the book actually that it's, it's this concern with feminine perspective the perspective of the woman protagonist that distinguishes Russian film. Can you explain how this develops and particularly Perhaps in the second film you look at this extraordinary mm-hmm. film, um, The Incestuous Father-in-Law. How does title. cinema develop this, this, this female perspective?
1: Yes, well, I would argue that the female perspective is absent in Stienka Razin. Um, at the end of the film, we, you know, we're shown it's only six and a half minutes long in the version that survives. And we go from watching Stienka madly in love with the princess to becoming jealous when he's told by his brigands that she's in love with a prince in her own country to then um, remembering that his duty is to lead the rebellion and very unceremoniously throwing the princess into the Volga where she drowns and that's how the film closes and everything about the film would have encouraged the viewers to you know cheer at the end this was a, a film that was based on a drinking song and it was shown in taverns and pubs so even you know for the woman in the audience this was probably a happy ending you know the, the threat of the oriental woman had been overcome and stenkharazin could go on so in that first film we don't get any sense of that but it creeps in gradually um, from about, in a couple of films in 1910, but not really developed, but primarily, as you say in this film, um, the, the incestuous father-in-law, which is my translation of the term snakhach, which is a very specific term in Russian that has no real translation in English. It refers to a peasant patriarch who sleeps with his daughter-in-law, and that is you know, a phenomenon that did exist um, in in the, the 17th, 18th and even up into the 19th century in peasant societies. So in this film, um, although the Snakach, the film is named after him, he is the central f- the figure in lots of the ways, The film has a sympathy towards the character that makes the viewer reflect on the experience that she's being subjected to. And already in this very early film, 1912, so only four years after the first Russian feature film was released, we see an extraordinary sophistication and awareness of of what cinematic technology and cinematic language can bring to the portrayal of the protagonists. And this is one of the earliest films in which we see the camera moving. And in the early days of film, The norm was to have a fixed camera. The idea was that the camera would be trained on a stage, very much like in a theatre, and that it would replicate the ideal perspective, the ideal view of the best seat in the house, in other words. And it couldn't move, it didn't move, it was fixed. Um, But in this film, we start to see the camera activating itself and in an, an extraordinary sequence... After the um, the girl has first been raped by the father-in-law, we see her trying to go to a soothsayer to find out whether there is anything better in store for her in the future. And the camera follows her. And at this point, the camera is tracking her in a way that is similar to the way that the patriarch has been following her at the first time he rapes her. But there's also a sort of sympathy about not wanting to let this this girl be alone in the state that she's in. And so Although this film at the end does revert to being centre stage on the male protagonist, she kills herself, and, you know, it's, it's an act of rebellion in the way that the film presents it, there is another ten minutes tacked onto the end of the film that looks at the effect of the suicide on him, and he becomes the centre again. But what we are seeing there, embryonically, is this beginning of the female narrative perspective, which people, you know, when these films were first rediscovered in the 80s, was seen as being one of the hallmarks of the Russian film style that differentiated it from the early film styles of other um, native national traditions.
0: Now, now, what is important here that these women, the Persian princess in Stjenkarazin, or the peasant girl, the daughter-in-law in the incestuous uh-huh. father-in-law, that they're performers? What, what's this about? Why, why is their performance as dancers, why is this significant within the films?
1: It's something that I've sort of um, thought a lot about, obviously, hence the title of the book. And it's something that I first noticed when I was an MA student at CIS and I wrote my um, MA dissertation on Yevgeny Bauer and on 16 films by Bauer. And that looked more broadly at the way that the films dealt with gender relations and presented sort of relationships between men and women. And it was in the course of watching the 16 Bauer films that I watched for that thesis that I realised just how many of Bauer's protagonists, Evgeny Bauer should perhaps say is the main filmmaker from this period, he's, he's a name perhaps some people have heard of, his films have been screened in London. We can talk more about him in a moment. But in Bauer's films, nearly all of his protagonists are performers, and then when I started my PhD research, As I looked more broadly at the corpus of extant films by other directors more generally, I realised that this wasn't just something that was unique to Bauer, but it was something that informed almost all the films from this period. And the image of woman as performer was the dominant image of woman that came out of them. Why? Well, on the one hand, we could perhaps see this as being um, an attempt to represent reality, you know, acting, performing was one of the vehicles, one of the avenues that was open to women who wanted to do something at this period. Uh, you know, career on the stage was something that women could aspire to. You know, it gave them an option other than philanthropy. Um, but it's obviously, well, I think much more than that in these films. It's, and it's used in, you know, for various different things. Perhaps one of the most interesting for me is the way in which it enables the director to encourage Um, people to think about the construction of femininity and the construction of gender roles um, and how we create a view of femininity that becomes fixed and encultured, if you like.
0: I mean, you, you, you talk about, you're drawing on, on classic uh, uh, film theory, Laura Mulvey mm-hmm. and so on, the way in which women in films are there as the object of male, mm-hmm. the male gaze, the way in which um, they're constructed in their to be looked atness. Yeah, great to use Mulvey's term. terms. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, of course, in the cinematic representation of performance is that you have a sort of double gaze. They mm-hmm. are looked at by the camera and by the viewer in the cinema, but they're also being looked at by the male protagonists. Um, Absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit more about this sense of double-looked-atness um, in film.
1: I think that's really important and it's actually this double-looked-atness that enables us to say that these filmmakers are not in and of themselves or are not seeking to objectify women and make them the objects of the viewer's gaze. The one thing that strikes a you know, in particularly with Yevgeny Bauer and the sophistication of him as a filmmaker is that he is always incredibly careful to distance what we might want to see of his view of the characters and in particular of the women from the view of the male protagonist within the diegesis of the film.
0: Can you give us an example yeah, of how this sure. works? Yeah, sure. So
1: he does it in numerous ways. So um, if we've thinking perhaps of what, of his first film, or the first film that we have of his that has survived, from 1913, it's a film called Twilight of a Woman's Soul, and straight away you have in the title the, the sense that this is going to be about a woman on the cusp of change, you know, the ambiguous um, concept of twilight. And the opening shot of the female protagonist, who's a woman called Vera, a young woman from a noble family, living a very well-to-do life in a beautiful home, with not much to do other than attend balls and be fated by her many admirers, The first shot that introduces us to her, when you first look at it, you think... Goodness, this is a very patriarchal image. This is not an image. You know, I'm not really going to get enjoy this film very much. This woman is straight away objectified, and it's like you know, it is a shot that's been quite a lot. The sequ- the shot showing her sitting there, has been quite um, widely discussed. It's very hard to give you a sense of of what it's doing without you being able to see an image of it. But essentially, it sites the female protagonist in the centre of the screen, sitting on a chair, looking in. Pro- she's in profile to the camera. She's looking off to the left of the screen. She, her bedroom which is the place she's sitting in is is in Yuri Sivian's words he's a film historian a kingdom of lace and gauze this is a woman in white she's passive she's pure she's beautiful she's surrounded by flowers she's surrounded by lace curtains there's even a veil draped in front of the camera separating her from the viewer and she's bathed in a sort of unearthly light from a spotlight that's high up on the left hand side so if you look at her from our 21st century perspective she is essentially sitting there as a, a compendium of cliche about nineteenth-century, you know, pretty um, limiting and, and limited images of, of femininity and womanhood, but Bauer makes it straight away clear. So you get this jolt, thinking, "Oh, this filmmaker's you know um, maybe not someone I want to watch." But then you 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 get this sense straight away. Ah, this is not the filmmaker. This is he's telling us that this is um, a constructed. Um, portrait of the woman he does it through Tim you asked how many how he does it well one of the ways in which he does it is by ensuring that he introduces the male protagonists into the frame as voyeur okay so we're sitting looking at the woman um, but then a male foot servant who the mother has sent to call the character down to the ball appears and he stands in the in the black because it's only Vera that's lit looking at the character and gazing on her and this Uh, this trope of the male voyeur is repeated later in the film when a male um, uh, workman breaches her room, climbs through the window and and does the same, stands looking at her unawares. So that's one way. It's by, by suggesting that what we're seeing is the view of a male protagonist. Another thing he does is by showing us very clearly that the real woman... Um, the you know once she starts moving and stops sitting still is nowhere near the sort of person that we thought we were looking at, so with Vera, he does this by straight away making her stand up, throw open the bedroom windows, letting real light flood into the the set um and showing that she's that she feels trapped by this image she she's constantly looking out of the window, wanting to escape, but also he does it by creating his set, and this is one of the things that Bauer is most well known for his sort of um his very innovative and expressive use of set design and props within the set, he constructs that first scene so that it looks like she's sitting on a stage. So straight away there is a distance between us saying, this is not real, you're looking at a, at a, you know, a character, this isn't or some, a construct, this is not a real person. And then he spends the rest of the film gradually stripping away this construction of encultured images to try to show as the real woman underneath them.
0: Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about Yevgeny uh, Bauer, who seems to be an extraordinary director of the period, dominant mm-hmm. director, interestingly referred to as a woman's director. Mm-hmm. And The argument you're making is that what Bauer is trying to do in his films is to represent this new woman, this socially confident woman who's beginning to acquire independence in patriarchal society. So on the one hand, we're talking about this, this, this new sort of woman. On the other hand, he, you also argue that what Bauer is showing is male failure, male failure to cope uh, with mm-hmm. the new woman, could you tell us a little bit about how this features in his films?
1: Yes, if we still continue to talk about the 1913 film, we see it quite clearly in that. So, Vera is fated by a man from her own class, a nobleman, a prince called Dolsky, who proposes marriage to her. However, in before that happens, she has been raped. Rape features in a lot of these films. It's a very violent world. She's been raped by a workman who mistook her sort of care for him as sexual interest. Vera is tormented by this, she tries to tell her her fiancé what has happened, but the letter that she writes to him goes astray, and so the marriage happens without her having confessed about the rape. Then there's a sequence where she, she tells him, and despite his professions of, um, you know, the fact that he will love her forever and never stop loving her. He can't cope with the fact that she's not pure. So again, this is another way in which Bauer is showing us that this image of her as a pure woman in white is is that of the male protagonist. What matters is is not so much his rejection of her, that's by this point what we would expect from him, but what matters is her response because she she doesn't let this crush her, but she removes herself from the marriage, she walks away and leaves him. And she then forges a career for herself as um, an opera singer. And it's in the final sequence that we just we see this clash of sensibilities. So on the one hand, we have a new woman who's taken control of her life. She's a professional performer, and that's another shift that we notice around this time. Women stop being just women who dance or who dance because men ask them to, but they begin to perform because they want to, they choose to, and they're professional um, performers. Um And so he sees her on stage, you know, another act of coincidence. And what he sees is the 19th century character she's playing. She's in a scene from La Traviata, the Verdi's opera, and she's playing the courtesan who's about to expire from tuberculosis. Um, We know that this is his view of her because we see a shot of him looking through um, opera glasses, and the shot has the opera glasses. So he thinks that as the character on stage, welcomed back the errant lover. Vera is probably going to do the same to him, so he goes to her dressing room after the show and professes love and asks her to marry him. She rejects him because she is not the 19th century woman who had to accept sorrowful lovers. She's a new woman. Her stage name is Ellen Kay which links her with um, a Swedish suffragette and feminist who is very um, well-known at this time and whose works have been translated into Russian. And instead she rejects him, not because she's in love with another man, that's also an important point. This was part of the formulation of what the new woman should be, according to Alexandra Cullenthal, a theorist from this period, Um, but just because she doesn't want to be forced to live in the way that he lives. So that's one way. Often in these films, the characters, the male characters, are unable to see past the, um, this, the character that the women are performing on stage, the fictional characters, which are nearly always rooted in the 19th century, and they're unable to recognise that that's a cultural stereotype that has just been adopted by the woman for the purpose of earning money and being a performer. The real woman, they can't see, and this is partly, I think, what Bauer uses the performer to do.
0: So it's fascinating, this argument that you make in the book, the way in which men can't see beyond these cultural masks that women are playing, but these women as performers are using performance not simply to imitate, but in fact also to invent forms of femininity, to find financial and social mm-hmm. independence, and so on.
1: And there are other films that really make this point clearer. So Bauer's next film that we have that survived from 1914, it's a fantastic film. Child of the Big City, it's called. Bauer wrote the scenario himself, but he draws on all sorts of 19th century cultural texts and also contemporary culture resonances as well. And what we have in this scene is a woman from a lower class who is picked up in the street by two aristocrats who you know, think that they can find in her they're sort of Pygmalion style figures. You know, They think they can create a woman in their own image if they find somebody who's poor who, who will be grateful to them for that. But they chose the wrong woman in choosing Mary because this is a woman who wants to be part of the 20th century, who knows her own mind and knows that she doesn't want to have to be a seamstress like all of her friends from poor families. She wants money, she she wants wealth and she wants the chance to do what she can. Bauer has no illusions that this is a positive model, by the way. Um, she's not a character who he is trying to make us like. Um, he's, he's instead raising, you know, very searching questions about the social roles that people can adopt in this new and changing age of modernity. But again we see him doing this through performance. So Mary at the start of the film um, is linked in a really complex sequence with a dancer who is modelled on the Salome dancers that were popular in Europe and North America in the early 1900s, um, but already by 1914, this style of dance is outmoded. Um, this this fact wasn't lost on critics who wrote about the film at the time, who said that the film was very good, apart from the hackneyed dance piece, which actually is performed by Bauer's wife, Emma, who was also a famous comedienne, um, and. The thing that they fail to notice, I think, is that Bauer knows this is out of date. He knows that this is a cliche. Um, Emma Bauer, for all her talents, is not um, a Salome-esque young woman. You know, along the model of Ida Rubinstein, the the dancer with Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, who did perform Salome. She's a plump middle-aged woman who's playing at being Salome, and again through this artificiality and showing us that this femme fatale role model is defunct and has no sort of place anywhere other than in the mind of the the male man who's scared of this young woman, he can show us how performance is used um, to allow the women to express themselves. So by the end of the film, uh, Mary, the character in this film, brings herself right up to date. She chooses her own style of performance, which is that of a tango dancer. And at the end, we see the most extraordinary tango, tango sequence, which is performed by the actress and her um her new boyfriend she's dumped Victor by this point um that lasts for about 2 or 3 minutes
0: Okay, so this, I mean, it's interesting in this film, we see a shift from, from an outdated form of dance, from salome through to tango. Mm-hmm. And in general, what you argue in the book is that we have a shift in women's performance from rural traditional forms like uh, uh, peasant dancing and the gypsy dancer, or more traditional urban forms like ballet, through to experimental styles like a tango mm-hmm. or early modern dance, Isadora Duncan mm-hmm. style dancing, that allow women to articulate their subjectivity in a way that expresses agency. See.
1: Yes, we have to watch very closely as we get into these more sophisticated films from about 1914 onwards. We have to watch how these women dance, because the the form of dance that they choose is very revealing about them as, as personalities. So, for example, um, a film from 1914, not by Bauer this time, by a director called Piotr Czardinin, who is another very prominent director from the period but one who's never been sort of accorded the privilege the status that Bauer has within this this cinema industry he wrote made a film called called chrysanthemums which exactly encapsulates this idea um, starting with a female protagonist who's a ballerina so a 19th century very sort of um, male-defined rigidly hierarchical form of dance and she is um jilted by an, another cad you know lots of these men jilt women who are madly in love with them her response is slightly different um to some of the characters she doesn't um, pick herself up and get on with it she harks back more to the response chosen by the girl in the in Snakhach, the incestuous father-in-law and she kills herself but what's different is the way that she chooses to do it and the sort of the choice of voice that she adopts as a way of explaining why she's doing it. So she finds that she's been jilted and she then finds that her former lover has brought his new um, his new woman, for want of a better word, to watch her perform. And so before she goes out onto stage, she drinks a vial of poison. So the viewer knows this, we've seen her do it. and when she goes out to perform she's suddenly no longer a ballerina, she is an Isadora Duncan-esque dancer. She has bare feet, she's dressed in robes, um, whereas before she'd been in, in point shoes and in the tutu. And the dance that she performs on uh, on this occasion is a, a model of, of dances performed by Isadora Duncan. Now Duncan performed, she was well known in Russia at the time, she performed a lot in Russia And in her memoirs, when she talks about her trips to Russia, one of the things that she emphasises is how oppressive and patriarchal she found the Russian ballet tradition. She wrote that she admired Pavlova, for example, as one of the greatest ballerinas of all times, but that she couldn't reconcile herself with what ballet and and the types of performance roles it cast women as did to women you know she talks about visiting the Imperial school of ballet and, and describing those torture chambers for the women so for her her form of what what's now known as early modern dance was a way of freeing women from that repressive hierarchy and enabling them both sort of the bodily freedom to express themselves more fluently on stage but also a statement. Um, a sort of way of saying i'm not going to be defined in those ways anymore I'm going to create for myself my own means of expression and in a silent film where the characters have no words that sort of the use of dance that's another reason I think why we see them as performance is it, it it speaks volumes and the, the change from ballerina to early modern dancer is very striking unfortunately she has to die she's taken poison but that's a relatively early film 1914 by 1916. Bao would be casting one of his protagonists as an Isadora Duncan-esque dancer right from the start of the film. That's in a film called Yuri Nagorni. And by the end of that film, the character who is maimed um, is the male protagonist, who she gets revenge on for the way in which he treated her younger sister.
0: So your, your book tells it provides us with an extraordinary window into the development of art form as a way of exploring women's mm. subjectivity, but also developing the possibilities of cinema itself. And uh, you know, It's a fantastic read, but it ends on a rather elegiac and, and, and sad note. What survives of this tradition? Uh, what, what are we left after the nationalisation of the film industry in 1918?
1: Yes, there was a sense in 1918 that this was the end of the era. The writing on the wall for the pre-revolutionary industry was clear to people who remained. Um, in, you know, Quite a lot of people emigrated, I have to say, before the revolution. Bauer had died in 1917, not through any connection with the revolution, through um, a pneumonia brought on by a complication after a fall. Um, but Chardinen, the director who I mentioned already is the, the creative person behind Chrysanthemums, he remained and he made a film to celebrate the 10th anniversary of his joining the film industry called Silence Still. Uh, Sorry, Still, Sadness Still, and essentially it reprises nearly all of the main roles um, taken by protagonists, female protagonists, not just in his own films but in Bowers as well. And again the protagonist is a performer, and in that film the performer does come to stand as a sort of symbol for the dying pre-revolutionary film industry itself. And one of the nicest things that I came across when I was working through the journals connected with this period of time was a a trace of how these films had survived within the consciousness, at least of... Well, not just the viewers, but also the the um, the accompanists. You know, the pianists who would sit in the theaters, the cinemas, and play the music um, that people would would listen to as they watched the films. And there's a wonderful article from an edition of a film magazine, in 1920 where um, a rather frustrated spectator, it has to be said, speaks of his confusion at watching a newsreel that shows the Red Army marching and hearing as the soundtrack to these images the theme tune that was adopted by the performer protagonist in Czardinian's last film, Sadness Sadness Still. Um, Other than that, the aesthetic sort of, didn't totally survive into the 20s for obvious reasons and if we think of the 20s in soviet film we think of you know the big names eisenstein zigvertov all the montage directors but there is a strain of of filmmaking in that period and it's something that i'm interested in looking at at the moment that retained the aesthetics of um early cinema and also its its sense of the need to explore the female perspective um through the existence of, of, of filmmakers who stayed and through actors who then moved into filmmaking.
0: Rachel, thank you so much. We've been discussing your book, uh, Performing Femininity, Woman as Performer in Early Russian Cinema. Thank, thank you, you, Rachel. Thanks.